The Alaska Powerline podcast is generously supported by GenPack. As a stocking electric utility distributor, GenPack has been taking care of customers in the Pacific Northwest since 1965. With a strong customer focus and dedicated sales staff, they have built lasting relationships by providing quality products with value-added services. Now with a new Anchorage warehouse and a dedicated Alaska sales and support team, GenPack is ready to take care of their Alaska customers for years to come. Visit them at www.genpack.com for more information. GenPack, taking care of our customers since 1965. Welcome to Alaska Powerline, the podcast of Alaska Power Association, the statewide trade association for electric utilities in Alaska. On Alaska Powerline, we talk about issues facing Alaska's electric utilities, interview a wide range of guests, and demystify what it takes to provide power in the last frontier. Welcome back to the Alaska Powerline podcast. I'm Michael Ravito, Deputy Director of Alaska Power Association, and we're excited today to be joined on the podcast by Gwen Holdman, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Research at University of Alaska Fairbanks, and her focus area is Innovation and Industry Partnerships. And Gwen is also the founding director of the Alaska Center for Energy and Power, or ASAP, which is also located up at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. So, Gwen, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Right. How is it? How are things up in Fairbanks? Is it cold yet? Because it's been kind of warm down here in South Central this winter. You know, it's been really warm, but we haven't gotten too many days that are above freezing. So it's sort of this beautiful, like, go do things outside kind of weather. So it's actually been really nice, but very unseasonably warm up here. Yeah, same down here. And for people who uh, like to get outside, it's not not a good winter when it's icy and slushy and nasty. I'd rather have the cold and the snow, to be honest with you. Got to get more people moving up to Fairbanks. That's right. There you go. Go up to Fairbanks <laughs> for your winter. Well, Gwen, thanks a lot for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you because um, there was just an important uh, policy tour of Iceland, but we'll get to that in a second. First, just for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do at the university and and what you focus on up there in terms of um, your mission and goals uh, and everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so as you mentioned, I'm this associate vice chancellor for research. Um, I really come to the university from more of an industry background. So, um, I have a background in physics and um, and mechanical engineering. Uh, I was prior to joining the university, I was the lead engineer um, for the geothermal power plant um, that was developed out at China Hot Springs, and so um, was really involved in all sorts of aspects of that. Have been involved in in power generation um, for most of my career, primarily because I've actually, I spent 20 years living off the electric grid um, up here just outside of Fairbanks. And so had to um, generate my own power for a long time and have a tremendous amount of, um, of respect for what it takes to run a utility and how, um, how much we often just take for granted reliable um, electric power services. Um, so I joined the university to start the Alaska Center for Energy and Power really with the idea of how we can leverage university resources to support our industries and our communities um, in the state of Alaska. So really sort of applying the expertise and, um, and, and, and stuff basically that we have at the university that we can offer and applying that to real world challenges in Alaska around this energy space. That was fascinating because there's definitely a lot of challenges up here in the, the 49th state with uh, the weather and the terrain and the geography and um, in, in the Gina Hot Springs 
project is fascinating. My family and I have been out there many times and it's just neat to see what the innovation can do just using, you know, the kind of the resources that are in the area to generate power and, and heat and other things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think um, having that had that opportunity or experience as a young engineer to really develop what was really at that time a very innovative and still is today a, a really innovative geothermal um, project because um, most folks and including those in Iceland never really thought about generating power from a, um, a temperature from a resource that was so um, so really low low enthalpy when we think about geothermal resources um, the temperatures out there that we generate power with are right around the cup of a really hot cup of coffee that you might have in the morning I've got my coffee here um, and I think about that pretty often so it's a really low temperature geothermal resource and um, and it was a pretty remarkable project um, it got a R&D 100 award um, at the national level and um, it's still operating you know over a decade later so I'm pretty proud of the work that we did out there that's great. And and before we get into the Iceland piece of it, can you just talk a little bit, what are some of the the, uh, the projects or the um, the research that ASAP works on and, and how does that, or what's the kind of like the goal of that to apply in a real world situation? Yeah. So the Alaska Center for Energy and Power, um, when we started that program, which um, was in 2008, so about 15 years ago now, um, we we really said, you know, what are sort of the challenges that are faced by um, the energy industry in Alaska and, you know, how can we build capacity to kind of address those issues? So at that time, you know, we were, that was the era when we were seeing really significant increases um, in oil price, which was great for our budget, um, but it was really challenging for folks, especially in rural Alaska, that were relying on imported diesel fuel. And we spent a lot of time really focusing on how we can support um, small communities and rural utilities in um, developing renewables as part of their energy portfolio, local renewable resources. So we have a really deep um, partnership with many of many of your members, um, you know, such as Cordova Electric Cooperative and um, Kotzebue Electric Association, um, you know, many of, many of the smaller communities as well. Uh, so a lot of the challenges that we really saw in Alaska wasn't necessarily around the technology, like wind turbine, wind technology, solar technology. It's relatively mature. There's some areas around the edges um, to iterate on those um, systems, but really it's around integration of all of these different energy resources to get to high penetration, high contribution renewable systems from these variable resources, um, while at the same time making sure that we're uh, just trying to keep costs contained, make sure that we have reliable power delivery. Um, so that that's really been like a big part of our focus for many years. We also work a lot on hydrokinetic power. So we do a lot of work, not just with in-river hydrokinetics, but also with like tidal energy, which is um, sort of a version of that. More recently, you know, we've just been focusing more and more on this integration challenge at larger scales. So we have a large laboratory um, up at the University of Alaska Fairbanks that is pretty unique um, uh, laboratory from anywhere in the world where we can test technologies, test systems, and test strategies for really integrating renewables with more conventional power generation technologies and making sure that we're testing it across all of the potential things that can happen in the real world, especially 
on these sort of smaller or weaker grids that we have here in Alaska. And so most recently, we just tested um, a uh, battery system, uh, kind of a, a, a packaged energy storage system. We call it the grid bridging system that we've been working on with um, Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, AVAC, and was tested in our lab. We had a number of problems with that. We brought in the developer. We brought in the manufacturer um, from Europe in this particular case, worked through those bugs, got that system operating in the context that AVAC wanted to make sure that it would operate within. And it's now been shipped out to St. Mary's where it's going to be integrated with the, the wind system out there, um, hopefully as we speak or has happened um, over the last like month or so. That's great. That's fascinating. And I know I've seen a lot of the work ASAP has done um, kind of out in the field as I've visited around to different communities. And uh, it's good to have an institution there that's supporting electric utilities in the state as, as they all advance into the future. And speaking of that, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, all of Alaska's electric utilities are, they're, they're kind of taking part in this whole energy transition, so to speak. And, you know, they're working very hard on um, transitioning to some of these new technologies and just different ways of generating power, storing power. And you recently uh, put together and helmed a very important policy trip called the Iceland Policy Tour with a number of legislators and uh, Rail Belt Electric Utility CEOs and others. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what that tour was about, how it came to be, and, and a little bit about why it's important to the future of Alaska? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been spending uh, over the last decade or so a fair amount of time in Iceland. Um, you know, I actually was an Arctic Fulbright scholar and and uh, did my international studies, my my uh, my my site visit and the research um, component of that Fulbright program in Iceland, working with their national energy authority, um, which is called Orkustofnung. And um, so I've had time to really see the Iceland. Um, energy industry, the energy market there, sort of really from the from the inside out um, to some extent. And so I've observed, you know, sort of these real similarities between Alaska and Iceland. Um, Iceland is sort of viewed as a global, you know, front runner when it comes to the um, to energy transitions because they are um, basically at 100% renewables when it comes to both power generation and heat. And, you know, again, remembering that that uh, Iceland is in an Arctic climate. Um, and so uh, I really thought that there was an opportunity space um, to get others a little bit more familiar with what's happened with Iceland. And it's not just so much the narrative around, okay, Iceland's developed out all these projects, they've transitioned, um, heavily to renewables. But what I was more interested in sharing is how that transition had happened. So it's not, we know the end result, but there is many ways in which Iceland is extremely similar um, to the Alaska rail belt grid, not so much our rural communities because they are all interconnected. Um, they share a common transmission back, backbone that we call the um, Iceland ring grid. Um, but they really grew up, um, the energy system there really follows very closely the evolution of our own rail belt grid here in Alaska, where you've got a number in Iceland of um, independent municipal utilities that grew up around population centers around the island, 
Um, and then over time, we're interconnected to share resources um, across these different regions. And so I really view that as very similar to our rail belt grid in terms of what are today are, um, are mostly or almost entirely cooperative utilities. Um, it's a pretty similar sort of evolution of the grid and of um, the strategy for power there. The rail belt grid and the ring grid are very similar in length. So from a geographic standpoint, even though Iceland is smaller than um, Alaska, the ring grid is not that different in length from the rail belt grid. And it serves kind of a pretty similar number of customers. There's actually um, maybe a little bit less in Iceland. There's about 370,000 residents in Iceland that are served by the ring grid. And I think it's a little bit more than that on the rail belt grid, which serves you know the, the majority of um, Alaskans, about 500,000 or so. But there's a lot of similarities there. Um, but then there's then there's a, this kind of this bifurcation. There's this little bit of where things are quite different, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more. But that's what I wanted um, folks to really come away with is seeing how Iceland has navigated this transition, how there's similarities. When it comes to Iceland, we can't talk about oh Alaska is this really small market. We have this small grid and a small population, because Iceland is really very much the same when we look at those kinds of attributes. Yeah, that, and, and just for, for listeners who, who may not be aware, the, the rail belt grid in Alaska generally runs from Homer in the south up to Fairbanks in the interior through through uh, Anchorage, the Matsu Valley. Um, and then the, the ring grid, as you talked about, it sounds kind of self-explanatory, but I guess it's just a ring that goes around almost, I mean, Iceland's almost like a circle, not an exact circle, but it's a circular shape. It just goes around the country, correct? Yeah, and that is one big difference and kind of an advantage that they have there. So so Iceland, the highlands in Iceland, almost nobody lives up there. It's really um it's it's a it's a pretty desolate place. Um that's actually a lot where some of their resources are from. They have a lot of glaciers um in the highlands. Some of the geothermal resources is cut right across the island. Um, but most people live close to the within like 50 miles or so basically of the of the of the shore, and so the road system runs around the island, um, and the the main transmission backbone, this ring grid, just basically follows that that road system around the island. Because it is in a circular configuration instead of a linear configuration, um, that there is an advantage there. You can send power two ways, so that creates some like um, pretty pretty um, just inherent uh, additional opportunities for resilience. You're not just um, reliant on you know if you have an outage or an interruption in transmission in one area, you still have the option to send power two ways around the ring. So that is one advantage they have. Um, but other than that, there's just a, there's just a lot of similarities. Yeah, let's talk about some of those um, in terms of where the Alaska Railboat Grid is today and where it wants to go, and then where kind of Iceland's grid was and where it's become, and how those are some similarities and how are there some differences there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, if we if we wind the clock back, you know, several decades, um, you know, maybe uh, back to the 70s, um, 
or, or 60s. You know, Iceland, um, they generated power from a combination of imported diesel fuel and lo- local hydroelectric power. That was basically what they did. So all of these individual municipalities had some sort of combination of diesel power plants, which, by the way, there actually still are a lot of backup diesel um, plants in Iceland um, in case of disruptions because they do have a pretty extreme and harsh climate um, and a lot of opportunities for different sorts of natural disasters there. I think right now there's a lot of concern around a potential um, uh, a volcanic eruption on the Reykjanes Peninsula. And so they do have like backup de- generators in many places. But for the most part, um, during the kind of the oil crisis of the 1970s, um, oil prices rose. Iceland was an extremely impoverished nation. It was still considered a developing nation. Um, the, uh, the median income was the lowest anywhere in Europe at that time, and they just couldn't afford these higher um, costs for energy. And so they really made this organized decision to transition away from um, this reliance um, that they'd historically had on imported fuels combined with some local, um, mostly run-of-river hydro, um, and move toward um, 100% um, reliance on local resources. And so um, in that way, they really embarked on this journey to build out their geothermal resources in particular for district heating. Um, One thing that I think is pretty fascinating about Iceland is how difficult that was because at the time, they didn't even have an engineering program at their university. They actually came to the United States. They went to um, Boise, Idaho, which has... um, one of the oldest uh, geothermal district heating systems anywhere in the world, and really just kind of learned, you know, how would you go about um, heating homes with geothermal? How would you go about, you know, potentially building out some of these larger hydroelectric projects? And, you know, part of that was really how do we find partners like in industry that can help finance and fund some of these build out of this um, of this larger scale generation? Um, how do we interconnect these different remote areas? Who covers the cost for transmission? And so that was like back in the 60s and 70s, um, this, this journey that really Iceland sort of navigated over time. And in many ways, that's where we are today on the rail belt grid with Alaska. You know, we've got declining, we've got concerns about um, future energy costs, the potential for importing natural gas, where we've relied for a very long time on affordable natural gas um, in Cook Inlet. How can we build out more local renewable resources? We don't have geothermal the way that Iceland does, but we've got many, we've got a much more diverse portfolio of potential resources and the technology for integrating those um, tech, those, those technologies have increased quite a bit. So I do think that Alaska is sort of at this, um, a, a bit of a decision point on which way do we want to go and do we want to do what Iceland's done, which is really kind of lean into this idea of um, focusing on our local energy resources and um, seeing how we can use that in the case of Iceland to attract industry, to grow our economy and diversify that economic base. Now, Iceland went through, uh, I think it was kind of a long journey to get to where they are. And like you said, uh, the Alaska Railboat is kind of like right now where Iceland was when they were starting all this. But what did you learn over there? What have you learned over time? I know that there was a group of people went with you that it might have been their first exposure to the Icelandic story, but you've been kind of invested in this and and researching it for a long time. What were the successes and challenges that Iceland faced that we could 
Uh, hopefully, we don't replicate the challenges here. But what could we replicate here in the railboat from Iceland that would be advantageous for consumers and electric utilities up and down the railboat system? Well, one thing that I've heard from Iceland um, for quite a long time is that one of the really key steps that they took was in unifying um, their transmission system. So moving away from this idea that you've got all these individual entities that own, you know, stretches of the transmission system combined with the state owning some of those interconnected resources. This is very much the way the rail belt looks today. And um, they were actually uh, really um, forced in some ways to move toward um, having a single entity that that managed that transmission network um, due to European uh, energy regulations. So as Europe was really deregulating their energy market, um, Iceland was kind of forced to follow suit. Iceland is not part of... um, It's not part of the European Union, but it is part of the the European economic zone. And so they're able to participate in the European Union, the the market, um, in exchange for adopting key types of regulation um, that that comes out of the the EU. And a big part of that um, a couple decades ago was really around this deregulating and opening up these energy markets to more competition. And so Iceland was sort of forced to follow suit. And a big part of that was unbundling generation and transmission assets. And, you know, the idea being that you kind of keep transmission assets as a bit of a monopoly, this is where you um, really don't want to have competition in the market. You don't want to have all kinds of different competing transmission networks. You want to have a single transmission network that serves um, users um, across a, a wide geographic area. And so um, that's what they did. They split out the transmission at assets. They kept that. They turned that into um, a company called Lundsnet, which is actually state-owned. And that's not necessarily the case in all places in Europe. But for them, they really felt like they didn't have um, they didn't have a large enough market to be able to afford um, additional costs associated with, for example, a for, for-profit transmission o- ownership, or even to have it um, sitting outside of state government. You know, for them, um, they felt that they're so small, there's so few people, that having that be... Um, owned and operated uh, as a subsidiary of the state um, made a lot of sense for them. And they think retrospectively, looking back on it, that that was a really smart decision and set them up for um, a lot of the um, positive outcomes that they've had in terms of developing additional resources, making sure there's an opportunity for independent power producers to enter into the market and keep costs contained. You know, that's probably the biggest difference between Iceland and a rail belt grid is the delivered cost of power, um, which in Iceland ranges between about seven cents delivered um, for, uh, for commercial consumers to maybe 11 cents a kilowatt hour for um, residential uh, rate classes um, and kind of a little bit of everything in between. So they have a pretty low delivered cost of power there compared to what we have here in Alaska. And yeah, and that's that's really interesting. And talk a little bit about because I've been fascinated to hear about how Iceland really made a big effort to attract large scale industry that could kind of anchor the power system and then help with the rates on the residential side. If I'm if I'm getting that correct, can you talk a little bit about what Iceland did in that context with large industrial electric load customers? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, going back to that 60s and 70s, um, you know, Iceland didn't have um, their, their economy was largely driven around um, uh, fishing for cod in the North Atlantic and um, and farming. And so their exports were, you know, um, pretty, pretty, um, pretty minimal. And um, they didn't have um, have a lot of access to foreign currency was was really a part of the challenge for them. And so they sort of worked with um, large in industry, and in this case, the aluminum smelting industry, um, to, uh, to enter into long-term power purchase contracts um, to generate power from local resources, from, um, from projects that had not yet been developed, um, but, but worked out an arrangement whereby they could attract these long-term industry contracts in exchange for building out the resources that would be required to actually um, provide power for these very energy intensive industries. And the aluminum smelting industry is really the primary one that set up shop um, in Iceland. And um, that's been a really um, synergistic sort of relationship. It's incredibly energy intensive industry. And so um, the other place where there's a big difference between Iceland and the rail belt grid is that there's actually five times more kilowatt hours sold in Iceland on a per capita basis than is done here in Alaska. Five times more. Um, it's actually one of the most energy intensive grids, electric grids in the world when you look at it on a population basis. And in doing so, you know, what Iceland's been able to do is not only attract these um, industrial users that really provide sort of a, a core or central component of their economic engine, but on top of that, because they're selling so many more kilowatt hours, um, uh, they have, you know, the, the fixed costs are kind of spread across more sales, essentially. And so that's where individual Icelanders or small businesses really benefit. Because if you're selling many more kilowatt hours, but your fixed costs are relatively the same, um, you can afford to reduce those costs. You know, it's sort of the way I, I like to think about it is that if you've got a bakery and you've invested in a certain amount of infrastructure and ovens and, you know, the cashiers and staff, you know, if you sell one loaf of bread or if you sell five loaves of bread, your costs are kind of the same. So you can sell those five loaves for much less than you could just sell that one loaf for. And Iceland is doing exactly the same thing when it comes to kilowatt hours. They sell power much more cheaply, partially because they don't have fuel costs associated with it, with their generation. It's all from renewable energy. But also because they're selling so much power, they can spread their fixed costs across these much, much more sales. And that keeps the cost contained for everybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I, it, was, it was interesting to hear that uh, Iceland's electric grid being as energy intensive as it is and having that place of, you know, the number of kilowatt hours sold. And we just think of Iceland as such a small country and kind of, a, you know, very remote rural country, but they're, they're really, um, they're really owning it or winning it, I guess, to say with their electric grid down there or up there or over there, I guess, by the globe. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I think um, that that I feel like the Alaskan um, contingent that went over there with me, um, what what really uh, impressed them also was the amount of ac economic activity happening there, as a result of inexpensive power. There are there's this huge diversity in terms of um, 
businesses, not just these aluminum smelter, but smaller um, businesses that are really working in this, um, you know, kind of energy transition sector, taking advantage of the low cost of, um, of generation. For example, one um, company that we went to was CarbFix, which, uh, which actually um, is working on essentially turning carbon dioxide into stone um, in uh, basalt formations, um, which Iceland, the entire island is basically in a basalt, large basalt formation. And um, they actually are, they have the largest direct air capture um, carbon uh, carbon capture plant anywhere in the world, um, right there in Iceland. So there's all these innovative businesses that have set up shop there. And if anything, Iceland's challenge right now is starting to turn away companies. They don't have enough, um, room on their grid amount, uh, enough, like, um, free, uh, free kilowatt hours um, to actually bring in new companies that want to come to Iceland. And so more and more, they're having to actually turn away um, some of these businesses that are interested in operating in Iceland because they just don't have the capacity to um, to connect them to the grid and to the existing um, suite of power generation sources that they have that just aren't adequate to meet the full demand that's actually out there. Hmm, that sounds like a, a good problem to have. Uh, Glenn, in, in the time we have left, I've, I'm wondering from what Iceland has done and accomplished, what are some of the aspects of their approach that you think the the rail belt could adopt and have success with in the relative near term? I know in, in, when we talk about you know building out or, or um, expanding or improving upon the electric system, we're talking years and years to complete projects. But what do you think is more is the most applicable? Um, approaches that Iceland took that we could do over here in Alaska's rail belt? From my perspective, I think, you know, really, and and you're right, you're right, Michael, like a lot of these things just take years. And so it can get pretty disheartening to think, oh my gosh, even if we started today in terms of like, for example, um, uh, modernizing our transmission network, it would take a decade to get that completed. But at, but at some point, you have to set a stake in the sand and say, we're going to begin today. And, you know, we have this incredible opportunity right now with federal resources um, that are being put into sort of these, you know, legacy um, uh, modernization of our, of our um, infrastructure in this country. And so this is an opportunity for us to take advantage of that, take advantage of federal resources um, to build out renewable energy projects that Iceland really didn't have um, have at their disposal when they really um, started to invest pretty heavily. And so from my perspective, I think a real initial emphasis on um, modernizing our transmission infrastructure makes the most sense in the short term. And when I talk about modernizing that, that's not just from a technical standpoint, but that's also from that sort of ownership and operational standpoint. Now, we really don't want to have this kind of pancaked ownership structure of um, transmission being a barrier to moving electrons north and south and integrating renewable energy resources at scale in one region that then can, that, 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 um, that consumers across the entire system can kind of benefit from potentially. And so um, from my perspective, I think first focusing on the modernizing our transmission grid from, um, from a, from a technical standpoint, but also from this operational and ownership standpoint is a really good first step. That's what Iceland did um, and what they still reference back on as an important first step. And it really keeps our options open. Um, by doing that, it's not uh, 
committing to any one path in terms of future generation. Um, it really enables us to um, go in many different directions or all of those different directions. And so for me, in the short term, that feels like um, the, the, the best thing that we can be focusing on in the short term. I know that I've, I've heard the, uh, the transmission system compared to you could almost equate it to like a highway and on a highway you need enough space to move a lot of uh, cars or vehicles and goods and you need access to that highway so that, you know, things can move back and forth. Is that kind of a, an accurate comparison to a transmission system? I, I guess I want it so the listeners know just how important a, an adequate transmission system is to moving large quantities of energy, regardless of how it's generated from one region to another. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's really um, the direction the industry has evolved globally. Um, Alaska has actually been able to um, avoid really, um, really um, being pressured into <laughs> opening up or deregulating um, our transmission systems um, because we're not grid connected, right? And that gives us a lot of flexibility um, to do things the way that, that we think is best up here. And that can often be a real advantage. Um, but in this case, you know, we are still at the point where our transmission system is sort of like this private toll road, right? So it'd be like if I have a project up here in the Fairbanks area and I want to send that power down to you, Michael, um, we stop when we get to Healy and I have to pay a toll um, to the Alaska Energy Authority that owns the Alaska inner tie. And then when I get to Matanuska Electric Association's territory, I have to stop and pay a different toll for covering for, for going through their um, territory. And then the same thing with Chugach and potentially all the way down to Homer. And so what we want to do is we want to free that up. We don't want to have um, these kinds of bottlenecks around toll roads and having to negotiate um, what we call wheeling costs when it comes to the electric power industry going across these different service territories. We want a road, a super highway that's open to everybody to use, that, that is um, open for access, and that makes us more open for business. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. I think that's been a big message um, that Alaska Power Association's railway members have been talking about consistently is, is that transmission system's uh, crucial nature and in, in accomplishing what we all want to accomplish. Well, Glenn, we're almost out of time. So I'm going to ask you like a standard podcast question in one minute or less. What is, what is exciting you these days? I know we could probably talk, um, this could be like a 10 hour podcast, probably on energy technology, but in just about a minute, what is most exciting you about the future of electric energy in Alaska it, it, on a whole, whether it's rail belt or, or statewide kind of what, what is really exciting? What are you seeing coming down the pike? Well, honestly, Michael, like because we are this small, um, this 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 relatively small place, you know, that has a huge number of different types of electric power systems that are all not connected. I really see us as potentially being um, a bit of the leading edge for testing a lot of these newer technologies that are coming um, down the way. I'm really excited about this um, pumped thermal energy storage system um, with Westinghouse that um, that may be moving forward um, with the, in Golden Valley. I think there's about a $50 million award for a first phase there. And I guess speaking of Westinghouse, I'm actually quite interested in the potential for micronuclear reactors and this new emerging class of advanced nuclear reactors and what that could look like um, as part of our 
suite of energy solutions, both here on the rail belt grid in terms of sort of firming up more variable renewables, but then also in some of our more remote communities that don't necessarily have access to um, fantastic local resources. I think that that's something that, that we're tracking really closely at the Alaska Center for Energy and Power. And I think that Alaska could really be an early adopter of those types of technologies as well. Yeah, it's all very it's all very exciting, and like we always say, if it can work and thrive in Alaska, it can work and thrive anywhere. So absolutely, yeah. Folks with new technology, come up here to Alaska, and we'll put it through the ringer. Exactly. <laughs> Gwen, thank you very much for for joining us in the podcast. It's been really fascinating. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks. So we've been talking with Gwen Holdman, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Research at University of Alaska Fairbanks and the founding director of the Alaska Center for Energy and Power. This has been the Alaska Powerline Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. 